Our loving Lord Jesus, we thank you. Or we should say we have deep gratitude toward you for your love that never fails. From the beginning of time, from the day you created us, from the day you've made us, <clears throat> you have always shown us this loyal, unconditional, continual love. Most of all, exemplified in what you did on the cross for us, but also every single day of our lives. And we want to acknowledge that to you today, Lord Jesus. Thank you for calling us yours, telling us our name. And I pray that as we look at the scripture today, which clearly tells us who we are as your children, Father, that you would reveal to us in our hearts of hearts exactly who we are, that you say we are, regardless of circumstances and situations and how we feel about this or that. But may this be that day when we go out of here knowing that we are your children and what that means. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, so we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and happy Thanksgiving. I hope you still have turkey and dressing in the refrigerator. That's my favorite. Um, not that that has anything to do with anything, but uh, we're finishing the last episode today of His Resilient People, that series that we've been going through that's really talking about how do we steward uh, or how do we um, care for all the gifts and the blessings and the nature of who we are and what God has poured into our life and what life means that he's given us life. How do we steward that as individuals, but also as a church family, a living organism called the body of Christ right here in a local church? How do we, you know, how do, we do the best with that? How, do, how, do we, uh, how does God ask us to participate with him in, in what he's doing in this world because we've been blessed with all of that? And so the first week we talked about how uh, what God really is calling for in the New Testament is participation in the gospel. And what that means is it's everybody in, all play. And what that means is that every single person is gifted and called by God with a purpose and a mission here on earth. It's not like he just saves you and then walks away and say, well, I'll see you later when I come back. Uh, no, it's, it's God has gifted every person for the mission on earth, and he has gifted every church with the people who have the mission or have the giftings for the mission and the purpose that that local church, uh, that body of Christ that we call the church, is, is all about. So it's a participation. It's, it's everybody all in. It's all play. The second week, we talked about how because of that, that means that every single person that walks in the door of our local church, as well as any local church, has the potential, has the possibility of making a real difference in lives, making a real difference because we're connected with the difference that God is making all around the globe, and we together are making all around the globe, that we all have that opportunity to make a difference. And then last week we talked about how that just sort of wells up this gratitude within us. And uh, if you were at the Thanksgiving service, the family service on Wednesday night, you heard Christian do a really good, powerful message on the difference between thanks of, hey, thanks, God, that's cool, versus gratitude where I am so into this that I am going to do something about it by giving my life to you kind of thing. That, 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 that gratitude is the most powerful force on earth that causes thanksgiving and God's glory and God's work in our lives to just overflow. 
And you've already heard uh, about the overflow uh, participation uh, end of the year effort that we're making. You can be a part of that. The fun is still there. It's still possible. But today what we want to focus on is the first part of our vision statement. That new vision statement I rolled out a few weeks ago. I'm going to, well, it's already on the screen. Look at that. It said, here's what uh, the mission statement says. We will take every opportunity to show gospel love to lost people and be companions of Jesus in making deep, resilient disciples. And today, we've been, we've, we have been talking about the resilient disciple part, the how do we make that, how do we become that, and so forth. And we're still sort of talking about that. But what does that mean in terms of sharing gospel love and showing gospel love to lost people? Uh, first of all, just to say this, nobody thinks of themselves as a lost people. So if you're talking to your friends about your faith, do not lead with that. But but the reality is we are all lost, and we're going to see today, we, we really don't know our way. We think we know our way until Jesus opens our eyes. Okay, that's what Paul's going to say today. And what that means is I want to focus on the gospel love part. How do we, how do we uh, you know, shepherd, how do we steward that gospel love that God has gifted us with? How does that happen? What, what do resilient people look like when they're showing and living and expressing gospel love for people? That's what we want to look at today. Because that's what Paul is going to talk about. You see, the whole reason for this series, let me just, since this is our last shot at this resilience thing, let me just remind you, uh, before we go into the Christmas season, uh, we'll start a new series next week. This whole series is not based on the idea that somehow the next culture after this one is going to be bad, 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 bad. I have no idea. But the New Testament seems to be really clear that however the culture, whatever the age you live in, that's not the issue. The issue is, Am I connected with Jesus, and therefore am I living a resilient life, meaning a gospel-centered life? The other thing I, I, I'm not trying to tell you is I, I have not figured out yet when Jesus is coming back. If you have, could we just have a convo in the corner of the uh, lobby before you leave? <laughs> because Jesus made it clear that we're not supposed to know. I, what I do know is that it's imminent. New Testament is clear. It's imminent. It could happen this afternoon, could happen tomorrow, could happen while I'm talking in this message today. So if you're getting bored, just pray for that. <laughs> Come back, help him, Lord. I mean, you could, you could do that kind of thing. Or, but what, what, what we're really saying is that what God has been up to in terms of what he's been doing in our life, this whole resilience thing, what it means is that God is doing something in us to create a people for himself that cannot be destroyed by the destroyer, that cannot be messed with by the devil. We're going to see that Paul specifically names the devil a specific name today. In other words, he believed, and I do too, that, it was a, that the devil's a real person. But God is making for himself a people that cannot be knocked off by him. And to get to where we're talking about in terms of what that means for showing our gospel love and living the gospel in our lives, turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because that uh, chapter is probably the clearest statement of resilience, of what a resilient Christian looks like. In fact, we're going to define it today from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning, uh, let's start right at verse 1 of that chapter. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry... It's God that's given us this ministry. We do not lose heart. Okay, now that's Paul's big idea. We don't lose heart. 
So just keep that file in the back of your mind because it's going to come back. Okay, this is where Paul's going. Right off the beginning of the chapter, he makes that clear. Verse 2, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. So he's got this freedom. He doesn't have these dark secrets behind the scenes. We do not use deception. They speak the truth. Nor do we distort God's word. And we know that, that Paul believes that. We believe this too, that God's word is the Bible, the word of God. On the contrary, setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. If you're underlining, underline everyone's conscience, because we're coming back to that. Everyone's conscience in the sight of God, and even if our gospel is veiled, and it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if there's all this blindness and they can't see, the reasonable question is, what's God going to do to undo the blindness Blindness of the God, small g, of this age? That's the name of the devil he's given it. Well, how, what's God going to do to undo that? Well, it involves us, his resilient people. That's the, the, he, he's going to show them and then remove the blinders right in front of them. That's what God's plan is. As we said last week, that's, that's plan A and there is no plan B. You see, there's a lot of people that are losing heart today, isn't there? And the universal question, the universal desire seems to be related to this phrase, everyone's conscience. We show the gospel, we declare it simply and plainly to everyone's conscience. In other words, everybody's got a desire. Every human being, we share that all together. Believer, non-believer, have this kind of longing that there would be somebody out there. We all are asking the question, you know, even from the time that we're, uh, you know, little children, we begin to ask, you know, why am I here and how is this whole thing going to turn out? That's just the, this longing that people have. And it's, it's, it's universal. It can be stuffed back. People can deny it, all that kind of stuff. But it's there. It really is there. I was struck about this on Thursday morning, on uh, Thanksgiving morning. I went out to do some lights, more Christmas lights. Uh, and... Uh, I saw that in the neighbor's driveway, brand new neighbors like two or three months ago, brand new neighbors, uh, an ambulance with the lights flashing, and a little voice came in my head and said, you know, you really should go over there and see if you can help. So I put some things away, and then by the time I got around, the uh, ambulance had taken off, so I, I went over anyway. I hadn't introduced myself to these neighbors, so that was a little weird, but I just said, hey, we haven't met, but, you know, my name's Dwayne, and my wife's Sharon, and, uh, you know, uh, just wanted to see if there's anything we can do to help, and Man, you would have thought I'd give the answer for everything. They were so thankful. What it was was, was, was the, uh, the, uh, a woman who lives upstairs with uh, a couple of her boys, uh, and her parents lived downstairs. The ambulance was there for her dad, had a heart, has a heart condition, and there was some real serious problems there, and they took him off to the hospital and so forth. Um, and so I just introduced myself and asked if there was something I could do to help. I didn't tell him I was a pastor because I didn't want him to have to deal with that too. I wanted them to know that I was, or think anyway, that I was a normal person like you. Um, and so I, I, uh, I said, you know, in the course of the conversation, I said, well, I'll tell you what, my wife and I, uh, we like to pray, and, and we'll pray for you. And you would have thought it was, about, like five times, it was only a five-minute conversation, but you, thank you for praying for us, thank you. It was like, oh, my word, you know, this is the greatest gift anybody could give me. And I don't know if they're believers or not, but, but the, here's the thing. When I left and went back to the house, it was like, you know, that, that didn't cost you anything. But ability to share gospel love 
in the midst of a situation like that, and it's so simple, it didn't cost me anything, and it was, the, it was God that was working in that. I just mentioned the word praying. And, and, and that's, I think, where Paul is going. That's exactly what he's trying to tell us is just live that out. And, and we shouldn't blow by this, by the way. Verse 4, when it says the God of his age has blinded people. We don't, we don't blow by it by saying, you know, getting all smug and smarmy, hey, uh, blind unbelievers out there. That's not why he's saying this. He's saying it for the same reason that Jesus had compassion in Matthew chapter 9. Remember those verses, 34 to 36, Matthew chapter 9? Jesus sees the crowds, and what does it say? It says he had compassion, which means a gut physical reaction, literally, to the people that were there, the crowds, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he told his disciples, pray that the the Father sends harvesters, because the Harvest is ripe. In other words, to somebody to help these people, laborers. And, and, but, but the reality is, is that Paul is saying this to say, have some compassion. Remember what it was like before you began to follow him. And how lost and how blinded you were. That's the condition because of this God, small g, of this age. This sense of compassion. And you know what? This, this hits right. I'm sure this isn't true for you. It's me. Okay? This, is my, this hits right at my conviction. The meaning I, what I mean by that is the, the thing that the Holy Spirit puts his finger on most often nowadays, like, yeah, remember that? Remember that? Uh, and it's, it's when I see somebody, maybe they're drugged up or you know, something like that, and something it's like you know, something they, they didn't have to do, and, it, uh, and, and, and I kind of had this reaction like, huh, boy, what's, what's, what's with that person? And immediately nowadays, the thought comes in my head, wait a minute, that's somebody for whom Christ died. Did you think about that? <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's what Paul is trying to tell us. Not so that we'll have this reaction, but for that, you see, what he's saying is, is have this view of yourself. If you're going to carry the name of Jesus, if you're going to be a Jesus follower, if you're going to be a Christ one, a Christian, then have this view of what that means. Have the view that you are shining the light of the gospel, being resilient uh, means carrying this light of the gospel, which you did not have until God took the blinders off so the light could get in, right? In fact, uh, some of you have heard me quote this uh, a couple of times. Chris uh, Green has quoted it on Sunday morning. He's quoted it at Think, Question, Believe. It's a, a powerful new book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. At the end, toward the end of that book, she has what I think is one of the most powerful paragraphs about how to, um, how to, be a resilient gospel Christian in front of other people. Look, look what this says. It says, it is crucial to bear in mind the main goal. It is not, first of all, to persuade people to change their behavior, as if we could do that. It is to tear down car- uh, barriers to becoming a Christian. No matter who we are or are addressing or what moral issue the person is struggling with, their first need is to hear the gospel and experience the love of God, which we just sang about. The most important question of their life is whether they will have a relationship with the living God that lasts into eternity. In our communication with people struggling with moral issues, we need to reach out with a life-giving, life-affirming message. We should work to draw people in by the beauty of the biblical vision of life. Let me say that one again. We should work to draw people in by the beauty of the biblical vision of life. That's what we've been talking about in His Resilient People. The the biblical vision of life, the beauty of it. 
As one psychologist points out, the goal is more rescue mission than culture war. That's kind of a switch, isn't it? That's kind of a different way of looking at it. And that's what Paul, I think, is saying is it's more a rescue mission than it is a culture war because of this blindedness that, that, that people experience. You see, when, when it comes to stewarding the gift of, of, of new life, the gift of the, the gospel that he has put in your life and uh, allowed you to see, he's caused you to see, like Jesus says, you know, um, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. In Romans, Paul makes it clear that when we're in our unbelief, we can't believe unless the Holy Spirit does something. So, so what Paul is, is getting at here is, is, is exactly that. It's, it's this principle right here. Almost every struggle between faith and non-faith is internal and relational and not based on what can be observed. In other words, you and I can't get inside and change the internals. Almost every, every person who kind of shoves off you know, believing in God, it, there's an internal or relational reason. Even some of the most famous atheists in the world you know, the Dawkinses of the world will tell you that there was a point in their life where they had a horrible experience, either with a parent or some Christian person or some church thing, and that's why they're not a Christian, right? It's, it's relational. It's not, it's not about faith. I mean, non-faith. It's not about reasonableness. It's... it's um, it's what Stephen Jay Gould, who's a, he's, he's passed away now, but he was a, a well-known atheist, but a lovable atheist, an honest atheist, if you will, uh, who, who had taught at Harvard, and he was a, a philosopher of science, he was an bio, uh, evolutionary biologist, and he made a very interesting statement, and I am majorly paraphrasing here. He said, there must be a reasonable way to believe in God and an, an intellectually honest way to believe in God. He says, I just haven't found it. And the reason I say there must be one is because many of my colleagues at Harvard, if there wasn't an honest, reasonable way to believe in God, they would be intellectual fools and dishonest. And I know that's not true about them. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's, that's kind of what Paul is saying is, is that, you know, so it sort of defangs this whole idea that somehow you know, we might be rejected if we say that we're a Christian or if we share our faith or so forth and that, you know, we're never coming back from that or whatever, you know, the, all the things that play in our minds. Because the reality is, is that, you know, it's uh, what unbelief most often is, is not based on, um, you know, something you can see and there's something you can help somebody with exactly. It's, it's internal and only God can remove those kinds of things and to, to, to remove the idea that this is true and this is not. To show people the, the reality of who God is. God himself is the one that has to do it. He just uses us as exhibit A to be able to share that with them. And that's why Paul goes on to make really clearly the expression of what happens in a person, what happened in you and me when we became Jesus followers. Look at verse 5. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants of, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 
I want to do a little experiment with you for a second. This is uh, probably overly simplified, and you're going to think, oh, this is really small. If, if you're afraid of the dark, by the way, uh, just grab the person's hand next to you, if you know him, that is, you know. And if, uh, yeah, if you're married to him. Okay, here we go. So here, here's, look at this. That's pretty bright, isn't it? Look, I can see the circle of that way back there. Don't, you know, if it's coming towards you and your eyes are sensitive, just close them. But you see how much brighter that shines? Besides that, I can see all of you with your cell phones on. So, But you see how bright that shines? It shines much brighter in the darkness. In fact, I encourage you to come for Christmas Eve just for that when we do the candle lighting. I mean, that's the illustration that Paul's giving. Okay, you can turn the lights on so I can see what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> the, the, that's, that's the truth. That when God created light and darkness... He made it so that the light shines brighter in the darkness. Paul's not saying we should go look for darkness. But if we feel like there's just a complete rejection of God, that there is this darkness, don't be afraid. Don't be down. Know that God is going to make that light shine even brighter. You see, the crazy thing here is this idea that God called out light out of uh, darkness. That's a, really a quote from Genesis chapter 1, Right? That's, that's God creating light and darkness. But here's the myth that, that many people put with the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, is that God just sort of created all this stuff and then washed his hands and walked away. No. The clear teaching of the entire Bible is God continually, continually, continually is recreating and making things new. That he's right now in your life and in my life and in the lives of those people that you're praying for, he's doing creation. He's doing new creation over and over again. In fact, skip to uh, toward the end of the chapter um, of uh, verse 16. Don't worry, I won't, I won't um, run out of things to say if we skip to the end real quick. I know that's worry. What are you laughing? Okay, you, you think I might run out of things to say. It's okay. Um, look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That word renewed is the one I want you to see right now, because there's two meanings of it, and this word is smattered all through the New Testament. It can, it can mean one of two things. It can mean, for example, that God, uh, that, that, that uh, this renewal takes place back to a previously preferred state, like Back to the unmarred image of God and your conscience is healed and that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here when he talks about being renewed day by day. But there's another kind, uh, another way of interpreting this word and it can all, it's just as powerful and they're both used in the New Testament and that is to create something that's different and better than what was before. And God's still doing that. For example, in Romans 12, 2, or in 2 Corinthians 5, which is the next chapter, it's used that way. For example, Romans 12, 2 says what? It says that we ought not to follow the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, made new into something different than it was before. And Paul's saying, that's what's going on for you. That's the gift of God in you. That's what's, what's happening over and over and over for you. Which, basically what Paul is saying is this. God's still creating his story, and you're in it. And I'm in it. 
I'm not saying that your life is inspired scripture. I'm saying that all the things that it says he's doing in here, he's still doing. He's still creating and he's still renewing you and renewing me day by day by day by day. And so for the Christians, it's a trajectory up. It's not a slow grind to the bottom and then a sudden stop at the end. That's not what life is. It's it's a, a renewal day by day, moment by moment until in eternity he renews us completely. And then look how Paul makes this super practical, beginning in verse 7. I just love this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, I've got to stop here a second. In the ancient world, jars of clay were like a dozen of denarii or whatever. They were like paper plates. People threw them away. So when an archaeologist digs up this find and they find, hey, we find a whole bunch of clay pots. I mean, the ancient world would think that. I guess it is important to archaeologists. But what Paul is saying here, he's not denigrating his physical nature. He's saying, we've got this gospel light, this this understanding, this, this resilience. We've got it in clay jars right now. Temporary things. So let me, since I butchered that, start beginning at verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now watch, he's going to begin to describe what this power is very practically. Verse 8, we are hard-pressed, or literally boxed in, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death of Jesus, uh, death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body, in our jars of clay. Now, let me be clear, because that's death, carrying around death. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What Paul's talking about here is when Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and die to yourself, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying there's this continual thing. And here, here's, the, here's the thing. You probably shouldn't lead with that one either when you're talking about your faith. Because it is completely incomprehensible unless there's a person whom the light of the knowledge of God has been displayed in the face of Christ. Verse 6. It's, it's just not possible to understand it, just like it's not possible to believe unless the Holy Spirit says, okay, now. You see it, you see but, but he, what he's talking about is he's saying to these Corinthians, hey, that's the life that we live. We carry it around. We're not, we're not you know, all miserable and, and living death. No, he's not talking about it. He said, we're dying to that stuff that we don't want to carry around anymore every single day, and God is raising us up. In other words, we're re- experiencing this resilient, or what's the ultimate resilience? Resurrection power every single day, moment by moment, all the time. That's what he's saying. And he's trying to give practical examples of what that looks like. And then in verse 12, he does sort of a little bit of a a sarcastic joke, if you will. He says, so then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. (laughs) I I thought that was funny. But what what he's basically saying is, so I guess what that means is we're picking up our cross and living with Jesus every day, and you're not. You're living in the the world life, this life that he says you're living life. You're living that life. Boy, you're really living that life. How's that going for you? That's basically what he's saying. Have you ever had a friend who, uh, 
who, you know, maybe a little sardonic, maybe a little ironic, maybe a little sarcastic sometimes, who you'll say something that's a little bit exaggerated and, you know, not very kind or something, and they'll say something back to you which is overly exaggerated honesty and clarity and kind of smile at you. I have a friend like that. He's fairly well known, so I'm not going to mention his name. But, you know, I'll say something like, those political jerks, I cannot stand them. And he'll pop up with a, yeah, you know, we should go over to their house and let all the air out of their tires. And then smile. I said, I didn't mean that. I know you didn't, but it sure sounded bad. And I go, oh, yeah, you're right. I think that's kind of where Paul's trying to go with this. He's trying to talk about this resilience. I mean, look at those resilient verses. I mean, don't you want that? I mean, there's a play on words, by the way. Don't want to go too deep in this. In the original language, it, it says, it's like these, you know, this, but not this. this. It, it's like, you, we're at a loss, but we're not at another loss. Or it says, we're knocked down, but we are not knocked out. I, I think what he's, what he's talking about is, it reminds me of when I was, a, you know, like four or five years old, I was terrified of clowns. Okay? It was so bad that uh, we went to the Rose Parade, I remember, one year. I remember this clear as a bell. I think it was like four. We went to the Rose Parade one year, and these nice people let me sit on the curb, and they told me there were no clowns. But a m half a mile away, I saw this sucker coming. And as a four-year-old, I dove over two fully grown adults into my parents' laps. I mean, it was, that's how scared I was. But anyway, um, if you're a clowning person, that's good for you. I'm not, I'm not scared anymore. Um, but I had this clown. My parents, this must have been their genius. They got this clown. I don't even know if this toy exists anymore, but it, you know, maybe it's not politically correct. But, but it had sand in the bottom of it. It was this plastic inflatable clown. And I'd walk by, and I'd just punch that clown, and then I'd jump out of the way, because the first time I did it, it came right back in my face, totally freaked me out. But the reality is, is that you punch it, and it down, it pops back up. I think that's what Paul's trying to say to us. That's what God makes his people like. You can knock them down, but they're coming back. There's this resilience. They pop back up. What he's describing really here is resurrection power. Now, why would God choose to do it that way? Why would God not make everything perfect for us so that we never get knocked down in the first place? Because that wouldn't really get his message to the world, would it? That really wouldn't open the eyes of non-believers. They'd have some biological, scientific explanation for why it happened. Here's why God allows that to happen. It's because believers are exhibit A to a lost world and to the angelic world of what he's up to on this planet. And the reason I threw angelic world in there is because the scriptures say the angels long to look into our salvation. Why? Because they've never experienced our salvation. They didn't need it. They're different kind of beings. They're in heaven. So that apparently they're looking down. They go, man, did you hear the father sent his son to die for these people? Yeah, and then he rose from the dead. Man, I'm telling you what, he must really love them. Boy, that would be cool to experience that. Right? I don't, I don't know if angels say cool, but it's that kind of thing. That that's, to the whole world, to the whole universe, that's the display of God's resurrection power in your life and my life. We are coming back. We're always going to bounce back. And I'm not making little of, of circumstances, but that's why I just love these, these, these ver next verses, because Paul's not making uh, light of people's circumstances either. Look at uh, uh, verse 13. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. So it, uh, I think that's uh, Psalm 1, 
16. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus from the dead, will raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So he's, he's saying that's why we open our mouth about our faith. Because we know that Jesus can bring about this resilience, this resurrection power is there. And even if we give the ultimate sacrifice, we will be raised with him. Do you know in the Roman Colosseum why they stopped killing Christians and feeding them to wild animals? It wasn't because a law was passed. It wasn't because ticket sales were going down. It was because of one particular monk, but you can make a case, but it was, it was happening before then because people were starting to get sick of it. What Christians were doing when they were dying, they were so bold and so speaking forth the gospel to the whole crowd in the Colosseum that pretty soon it wasn't fun anymore because the Christians were showing themselves to be the only sane ones in the whole building. And people, ah, this isn't going to And it stopped like that. Almost overnight. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. This is long before that happened. But he's kind of showing that kind of resilience. Verse 15, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people still across the planet may cause thanksgiving to overflow from the glory, uh, to the glory of God. You see, I think what, what Paul's saying here is the more you experience resilience, the more... You, you, you begin to understand it. There's something about going through these kinds of things that it sharpens you. I, I uh, had this experience a few years ago uh, when we did the remodel in the house, just a, two or three years ago now. Seems like it's been going on for 10, but anyway. Uh, we cut down this spruce tree in our front yard. And I, I always have to say this when I say this. If, you know, I had a few people, they said, that was the Happy Valley Christmas tree. Man, that was two years ago. So, I mean, it's... It, 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 I had to cut it down. It, anyway. um, and so I told him to leave the logs there, bought a brand new chainsaw, and I could not cut through this thing. I thought, man, this thing's sappy. I called my father-in-law because he's been a pastor for uh, you know, 70-some years, uh, but he uh, also has worked as a logger and does a lot, a lot of logging, so he knows chainsaws. And He says, try this, try that. Nothing worked. Well, then uh, that year, about Thanksgiving time, he came out. And uh, I told him about this because the logs were still sitting in my yard. And he, he said, well, let me see. Have you put it in dirt or something? He goes, and I said, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I've been trying to take care of it. And he goes, oh, well, just bring it to me. And he, he puts his thumb on it. And he says, well, all the teeth on this chain are just dull. He says, here, give me the file. And so he filed every tooth. And here, now try this. And so he sends me down. He's standing on the deck. I go down there, right through the log. He goes, how is that? like butter. Don't put it in the dirt, okay? You know? What I think Paul's saying is, is that's a daily sharpening of our lives. Why? Because you want to know if you're going to have resilience when you need it, right? I mean, the principle here is this. The more you experience resilience, the more certainty you will have that you will have it when you do need it. And so you don't worry about the future. You don't worry about what's coming down the line because you know that God's going to show himself strong in your life regardless of what happens. You know, it's talking about this day-by-day renewal thing again. I had somebody ask me a question when we were going through Philippians a few weeks ago. 
And uh, this person said, do you think that peace is the same as this joy you've been talking about from Philippians? You know, that resilient joy, remember that? And uh, this person then told me about some horrific circumstances that they had experienced, some stuff, stuff that you would say, you know, if a person is joyful in the midst of that, at least expressing, hey, this is great, then something is wrong with them, right? These were bad, bad experiences. And um, I gave some sort of silly theological answer like, no, I think they're distinct, but you're sure showing joy to me right now. But that question just keeps rolling in my head. And as I've been reading this and we've been going through this series, it's just kind of struck me. It's kind of hit me. What if it's like this? What if the Holy Spirit, when you've been kind of on that knockdown side and you're on the way back up, but you're, you're, you're on the way, what if the Spirit then says, okay, here's my peace. Here's a sense that I'm here, that I've got you, that I'm taking care of this, that you're coming back. You got the peace, but you don't, until you get the joy, I'm going to give you the peace. Until you get the joy of, of knowing again the resurrection power of Jesus, I'm going to give you the peace. What if, what if the peace of God is what God gives us when we're still in the grave on Saturday night until Sunday morning, right? What, what, what about that? I mean, I, I, I don't have a scripture for that, but I think I'm in line with what this scripture is saying. But that that's what he gives you when he opens your eyes, because it's not just that he opens your eyes to the gospel when you first become a Christian, but he opens your eyes every day to things about his presence in your life and what he's up to and what he's practically trying to do in your life. And it's because of that, because Jesus is in the process of reversing the curse. Verse 16, that you can say this, therefore we do not lose heart. Though inwardly we're wasting away, yet... uh, Yet inwardly uh, we are being renewed, uh, outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, because we can see him now. Fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is, tempor- what is seen is temporary, And what is unseen is eternal. Why do we fix our eyes on what is unseen? Because for the first time in our lives, we can. Because he's made it possible. By taking those blinders off that were put there by the enemy. You know, one of the things that blinds us among many things, or blinds people today in this culture, is a uh, philosophy, an idea that's making a comeback. It's called emotivism. Emotivism is, uh, you know, based emotion, only emotivism, okay? Uh, and emotivism started after World War II when the philosophers and the Freudians and the, and the uh, you know, certain uh, secular progressive uh, scientists and so forth, all, uh, you know, they, before World War II, they were saying, you know, uh, human beings can get better and better and better by technology and the discoveries of science and so forth and so on. And really, it's not about morality because there is no such thing as morality because if you have morality, you have to have a God and there is no God, things like that. And then after World War II, that whole philosophy kind of fell apart in many ways because they saw the reality of evil in, Nazi, in the Nazi regime and the horrors of that. They also saw the goodness and the nobility of the heroes who stood up to it, 
So you had good and evil, which sure seemed like more than just, you know, the juices running through your veins and the synapses and, you know, the things that can be observed biologically, right? So they came up with this kind of reshaping of their, uh, their philosophy called emotivism. And emotivism says this, said that all moral statements like, you know, that's good, that's bad, that's beautiful, that's not beautiful, so forth, all moral statements aren't actually real. They're just expressing the feelings, the emotions, of the person making the statement. Have we heard that? I mean, what happens then? If you make a moral statement that is in conflict or says someone else's moral statement isn't correct, what you're doing really is you're putting down their feelings. And that isn't very nice, is it, precious? Right? And I'm not trying to say Christians should be mean, nasty, rip people. No, 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 no. Don't understand me. Please understand me. What we are living with in a world today is where morality has been reduced to a simple foundation that's very fragile and very shakable to the idea that your feelings determine your morality, my feelings determine my reality, and, and that your morals are your choice and my morals are my choice and they're not really morals anyway. They're just how your biology works together. And here's the sad thing. The God of this age, small g, has blinded people that, they're even in, that they can't even see that they're even in prison with that idea, right? And what should that give us the response of? A response of compassion, of really feeling it like Jesus felt it with people who are lost like sheep without a shepherd. And if we have that, the chances are really good that when we go out and we go to work and we go to school or we visit with our neighbors or we go to our families, we're going to show gospel love to the people that are in our world. And now we know what that means to be resilient. It's that resurrection power showing itself not powerful to bowl people over, but powerful in the message of what God can do for you if you simply open your heart to him. That's it. And all, that's, all that kind of defangs the whole going to share your faith or mentioning that you're a Christian. It defangs the idea that, you know, uh, I've had a rough spell of it. I feel like a cred magnet, you know. <laughs> What's God up to? I'm not putting down anybody's tough circumstances. I'm just saying that that's exactly what God can turn around for his resilient, joy-filled purposes. Let me just summarize with some final thoughts what I think Paul is saying here and has been saying this whole Resilient People series. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you abide. That's his word, John 15. The more you abide in him, you become like him in his resurrection, which is, after all, the ultimate resilience, wouldn't you agree? Which we will all one day experience, but what this Paul's telling us is we get to experience it every day in this little way and that little way and these other ways, not maybe just the ultimate way. But you begin to see that your life is one big table-turning trick on the devil. And that's pretty cool. I'm tricking the devil. And here's the thing. That's his, Jesus' goal. That's the whole point. And that is targeted and that is aimed at with laser light accuracy right at the heart of everyone's conscience, verse 2 of chapter 4. 
that God is revealing that gospel, that good news, to every single part by focusing that in. And folks, the, the, the stakes are high because the number one reason why people walk away from the faith is because they were never all in to begin with. They may hang around church. They may hang around Christians. But there comes a time at which they walk away if they haven't been all in with him. I had a conversation with somebody the other day. They said, hey, what happened to so-and-so and so-and-so? Uh, you know, they, I, they haven't been a part of this church in years. And uh, they'd been out and about. And they went to some others and stuff. And the person said to me, uh, well, last I heard, they didn't even believe anymore. And I'm not saying that happens every time. And I'm not saying that anything about Eastridge or anything like that. I'm just saying that if we're not all in, we're in very big danger of having the God of this world blind us. And, and, and that's why we want so longingly for everybody to be vested. It's not because, And that's why Jesus wants you to be vested. It's not because he needs our time or our talent or our resources or our life. He just wants, he, he knows that unless we're all in, he can't. Give that resilience to every part of us. And that's what he desperately wants to do because that's his mission and priority one is to make a people like that for himself. I'm going to call a band out here and just say, I want you to hear that from Jesus. In the end, I want you to hear that well done, good and faithful servant thing, which means, hey, you know, wasn't that an amazing life that I gave you even while you were here on earth? Now enter into eternity with where all that just comes to fruition. That's the wonder. That's the hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we go into this Christmas season, that you will give every single one of us in our heart of hearts, because only you really know what's going on in our hearts and in our minds at the level it is. Only you can reach in there and touch, because most of this is internal. But would you open our eyes to what it is you're doing in our lives in these days? And would you make it clear and give us that confidence and that certainty that we are and will be your resilient people? Thank you for the wonder of the gospel and what it is you have done for us and in us and that you keep recreating in us every single day. And I pray that that would be sharpened in this church that understanding, that, in, that insight, that it would be sharpened by the days of our lives and we would realize that every single day has a purpose. Every new week has an opportunity to have that resilience confirmed and your resurrection power confirmed in our life again and again and again and give us the joy and the hope that comes with that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, as we begin this Christmas season. Thank you that you came for us. And may we celebrate that and experience the deep gratitude that just overflows in the glory of God in these days in this church. We love you, Jesus, and that's why we pray in your name. Amen.